0: Welcome everybody to Legal Tech Week for July 16th, 2021, our uh, usually weekly round table where we round up the uh, top stories of the week in legal tech and legal innovation and uh, whatever else strikes our fancy. I am Bob Ambroji uh, of the blog Law Sites where I cover legal tech and innovation. And our panelists today, as you see them before you uh, go around. Steve, you wanna go first?
1: Sure. Uh, Steve Embry. I uh, published the blog, Tech Law Crossroads, about legal innovation and uh, technology. Prior to that, I was a practicing lawyer in a big law firm, and uh, I live in Louisville, Kentucky, where it's stormy and rainy today. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. Victoria. Hi,
2: everyone. My name is Victoria Hutchins. I'm a reporter for Legal Tech News slash ALM. Where I cover technology, cybersecurity, and data privacy. And in Philadelphia, it's a very sunny and humid, ninety-three
3: degrees.
0: And uh, Victor Lee, what's the weather where you
3: are? Um, <laughs> partly cloudy. With actually, no, it is partly cloudy here today. Um, my name is Victor Lee. I am a, a legal. I am a um, assistant managing managing editor with the ABA Journal. Um, it hasn't been too bad here. I mean, we, we, we had a couple of days where uh, it actually rained for the first time in a long time. So that was good. Um, you know, we, we, we were fighting like high 90s earlier, you know, last week. So it's been pretty bearable otherwise.
0: And Zach Warren.
4: Hey there, everybody. Zach Warren, Editor-in-Chief of ALM's Legal Tech News. you also see me on Law.com and other brands. Uh, it's nice here in Minneapolis. We only have like three months a year where you can actually go outside and enjoy things in Minnesota. So it's nice to be a part of that three months right now before we hit October and the inevitable like foot of snow in late October
5: to remind you that you're in Minnesota. All
0: right. Next up, Joe Patrice catching up with a drink in his hand.
5: Oh yeah, no. Uh, Joe Patrice above the law and thinking like a lawyer. Uh, yeah, no. Uh, it is, it is hot and humid here. But I'm looking straight ahead, and that window has a real dark cloud in it. So I think it's about <laughs> to probably mid show become a much more ominous uh, feel here.
0: Sounds good. How's the weather up in uh, Rochester, New York, Nikki, or wherever it, you are?
6: Uh, well, today I'm uh, by a lake, but um in the general area of of upstate New York. It is uh, crazy, it's super wet and rainy and thunderstorms all over the place. In Rochester right now, there are flash flood warnings. I'm not there though, so that's good. But there have been flash flood warnings where I am. So it's just rainy and um, wet. And uh, my name is Nikki Black. I'm (laughs) the weather reporter for upstate New York. And uh, in my, as a side gig, I I'm a legal tech evangelist of My Case, Practice <laughs>. Management Software. And I um, write articles for, about legal tech for the ABA Journal, Above the Law, New York Daily Record, um, and the My Case blog.
0: You've got competition for that evangelist title now. There's a new uh, legal tech evangelist out there in the world, Samina I, Kluck. Uh,
6: I saw that. Uh,
0: I, I think hers is her.
6: brand evangelist, it looked like, but there's a yeah, whole bunch I, of different companies hiring yeah. this position um yeah. and this sort of started with me and then josh Leonard from cleo was hired a couple months later and from there you uh had although his position i think has changed over the years i'm not sure but from there you've had yeah. like all sorts of people being hired into this so that's kind of cool to see yeah for sure
0: but you are still the leading evangelist on google in terms of my seo search so uh, did you and, did uh, you do
6: a, um <laughs> i just searched uh, legal
0: tech evangelist you were not but
6: do you have to do a, what are those searches that you do that are um you have to do an um, incognito search to get the true results.
0: I did it incognito. Yep. Okay.
6: There you go. but I'm that I'm super impressed with there those
0: I results. Did. Yeah. <laughs> and i uh, <laughs> uh, Molly.
6: I'm Molly
7: McDonough. I'm a media strategist and consultant based in the Chicago area. Former editor of the ABA Journal, and currently working with Legal Talk Network on Legal Talk Today.
0: So uh, we had uh, all gotten together and talked about the stories we were going to talk about today. And instead, we've decided to start with one none of us had planned to talk about today, but something that really just kind of came up today. Um, Jody, you want to talk about it? Since I know you haven't written about it yet, but you planned to write
5: yep. about it, it. Right. Yeah, yeah. So I guess that that makes me closest to it uh, of this <laughs> particular group. Uh, yeah. So uh, Morgan Stanley, um, if you've been following, there, and, we, and we've talked about this on this show too, the Trend of the and the inflection point that the industry is coming to down the road is we're go- whether work from home is going to be a thing that stays, whether it you know or some sort of a flexible schedule. Uh, a lot of law firms are starting to move that direction uh, with three or four day in office plans being announced. Uh, is this really going to be a thing? And Morgan Stanley's CEO a few uh, like a week or so ago put out a statement uh, and got himself is as much media attention as he could, demanding that everybody needs to come back. And now, uh, the thing that just broke is that the chief legal officer of uh, Morgan Stanley is telling his outside counsel that they all need to come back to work. Um, that, you know, the, the profession, we, we have no, I think there's a line, we have no doubts that law firms that have everyone in the office will perform better work than uh, law firms that don't do that. Uh, And so he's saying that uh, everybody needs to come back. And with that said, uh, I kind of thought, given that there's only one client that seems to be pushing this in every vector possible, legal, Mm -hmm. news, press, whatever, that uh, I think there might be one bank on the street who's really heavily underwater on commercial (laughs) real estate, uh, (laughs) because I don't really know what other reason they would have for this. but, But I'm kind of a follow the money sort of person, so...
1: I'm always suspicious when somebody says they they have no doubt that yeah. something will happen and then and then don't proceed to provide any evidence whatsoever. <laughs> well,
0: I mean, my, my initial reaction to this was,
1: was that it wasn't totally
0: crazy because uh, it's, it's somewhat reasonable for a client to take the position that... Uh, Law, that, that, communic- that, that law firms are more secure environments for uh, in- exchanging communications and, and documents and, and whatever else. There have been any number of studies, I think one just came out today that suggested that, uh, uh, you know, work from home has resulted in a, a surge of uh, cybersecurity incidents. But that was before I read the letter. I still haven't read the letter. But based on what you said, Joe, there, there's no reference to that whatsoever. So that doesn't,
5: doesn't appear to, to be, be I, the reason. Let me check again. But yeah, <laughs> it seemed to be very much about productivity.
6: Well, but notably, I had mentioned this when we were talking about this earlier, Morgan Stanley has been um, just made the news because of they themselves have been breached. So uh, it was a pretty big <laughs> breach. So I posted that in the Chat, But um, I thought it was interesting you brought security up because I don't think that you knew that when you raised that, Bob. No, I um, I didn't, no. Yeah, yeah, so they, I wonder if that may have uh, maybe um, a larger factor at play than um, you may be onto something there too. I think you both might be, I'm not sure, but they had a a big breach (laughs) and it happened while everybody was out, so.
1: And I'd actually wanted to talk about Catherine Rubino's article on a similar note uh, in above the law about the, the the managing partner of a I guess AmLaw 100 firm or at least office in Atlanta who uh, was sort of spouting off if he is the right way uh, of putting it about the importance of of being in uh, all the lawyers being in the office and uh, how that you couldn't have any sort of personal relationships uh, remotely, which is probably news to a good number of people who have done that remotely for many, many years. Uh, I, I, for example, traveled most of my career and had a a pretty good relationship, maybe as far as I knew with my wife, even though I wasn't home all the time. (laughs) Uh, And, uh, you know, I I just... uh, just as I was reading this you know I was thinking Molly as as you know we we Molly and I are participants in Ari Kaplan's virtual lunch that's been going on for a year and you know I think we have at least I have forged a number of relationships through that that virtual sort of situation that I never would have had otherwise. And so I I just uh, I'm sort of wondering how this is all going to play out. Uh, I know Paul Hastings came out with a big uh, policy about return to work. And now they're kind of kind of walking, walking it back. And um, it's a good article today by uh, by Bruce Love about, uh, you know, associates voting with their feet and uh, going, perhaps going to going to go to firms or leave firms that are, are very strict about this and head for firms that, that are not so strict. And so it's, um, it's just, I don't know, I will, I will say this, I went to my first in-person meeting in a year and a half this past week, and I was very excited to go and really looking forward to it. And meeting was supposed to be an hour and a half and about two and a half hours into it, I sort of wondered to myself, God, I really didn't miss this at all. This <laughs> you know, It was something about an in-person meeting where people felt entitled to sort of spout off and to pontificate when they never did before. <laughs> so, so all of which is a good way of, I guess, saying that I hope we're not going to knee jerk into everybody come back and be exactly like it was before without pausing to consider that there are pluses and minuses to, to every sort of change like that. And sometimes the, the pluses of being remote are, uh, are, are more than the minuses.
2: I think Morgan Stanley CLO just expressed in paper and it got in public with some clients were thinking. Not all. I really don't think all of them. I think some of them are just kind of like, yeah, we we worked, um, you know, work, we worked with our outside council well with everything being remote. We still had access to them. This uh this um quality of the work was still the same, but I definitely think there's clients out there that are just like, I want, I want them in the office, like I'm requiring my people to be in the office. I don't know if that makes a ton of sense in Morgan Stanley, like their arguments made really didn't make a ton of sense to me, but we've seen when they were saying like, oh, lawyers, apprenticeship, they develop better when they're in the office. We've even seen like law firm partners say that like um, months prior, like that's why um, with their argument of why um, firms need to go back into the office. So it'll be interesting to see like what Steve was saying, like, will they just revert back to the status quo, because I don't think all clients will um, say like, hey, we we want our outside counsel back in office. I think some of them will just figure like as long as the quality is still there, you know, do what you need to do. Yeah. But like my colleagues mentioned in the article, you know, law firms, they tend to kind of follow... Um, others, like we saw with the associate bonuses. And if they think like, oh, we may lose work from large financial institutional clients, they'll say, and I think one of um, my unnamed sources, like a law firm leader said like, okay, with our return to office policies, now with like a Morgan Stanley saying what they said, that makes our um, request to our employees seem a little bit less arbitrary. It's kind of like, okay, we have client, we have a client saying like they want everyone back into the office. So it'll kind of be interesting. I still don't think it's all corporations that really care too much about the outside counsel coming in, but I do think there is like a a percentage of them that are kind of like, okay, we want them back in office as well.
3: Well, and just kind of thinking back off that. I mean, I think that, I I agree with Victoria. I mean, I think that, you know, it's very much a copycat uh, culture, especially amongst the big law firms, but I'm sure like, if you ask like, you know, a lot of the big law firms, honestly, like, you know either off the record or connected to a lie detector or whatever you want to say, most of them would say we want everyone back in. We want we want things to be the way they were before the pandemic. We want everyone in the office. You know, law firms, especially big law firms, have always been about showing your face, uh, putting in the putting in the FaceTime, making sure you're you're at you're you're at your desk or your office or your cubicle or whatever when you're when you're when your partners see you or you know or whatnot. Make sure you're there doing the work. Make sure you're there on weekends. You know, it, it's very much sort of like a FaceTime oriented, not FaceTime the you know <laughs> the the app, but of actually like physical FaceTime oriented culture and you know law firms have always been so defensive about it so not defensive but so like you know wanting to protect their culture and culture and a lot of that is based on just seeing people there and being and being together and whatnot so i do i do wonder if this is just going to be like if, if, if especially if a client is a major client like morgan stanley is demanding you know their their lawyers return to office if that was just a way for them law firms just be oh like, right, well hey when it's, when it's come back in what can we do you know clients are always right
0: Victor, your, your well, I mean, law firm sit down for a lie detector test is absolutely great. Maybe that could be a special issue of the ABA I Journal. Would, I, would, I would
3: host that show on on, on television. I, 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 there, there are a lot of questions I would ask, but I don't, I don't know if uh, they'd be appropriate for a lie detectors type show.
1: But, you know, and, and to Joe's, Joe's point, I mean, uh, an entity like Morgan Stanley does have a, probably a significant financial interest, not just in their own buildings, but in the buildings of all these people they have loaned and entities they've loaned money to that could suffer severe economic problems if 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 they don't come back and and rents aren't paid and so you know there's no no discounting the the financial interest but you know to victoria's point there there are there would be situations for example where your client the client's law firm is in the same building and it's very convenient to have meetings and pop in and you know have discussions and that's valuable and important you know, certainly in, in my career, I, I, I didn't have any clients that that were like that, or really were not in town. So I was yeah. always dealing with them with re- remotely, and they yeah. they didn't care. Yeah. Uh, I think it was Molly. Then Joe me. was going to comment next. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I, I, had I, I had was just going to gonna throw in yeah.
7: that one of the one of the um, issues that you would you would assume it would be security, but that's not what the letter said. <laughs> so it was right. performance based. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, I do think there are legitimate reasons for risk and compliance until I started seeing so many of these products coming back into the market or being improved on the market, including one I saw demoed uh, with some updates um, at during Legal Week, which is uh, Microsoft 365 um, security and compliance. Um, that was a really interesting tool that you know, integrates with your email, whether you're remote or or um, in person and really, you know, helps flag some significant risk uh, um, among employees that you can you can help manage. And Steve, this is the direction I thought you were gonna go in, Steve, with Ari's lunch. Um, the last month has been sponsored by Lit Lingo, which is also um, flags communications for security and compliance uh, for, for the user. So it actually helps the user understand if they're about to send something risky. There's also some back end review of this too, but it's a really interesting tool to help the user understand if they're sending things that are inappropriate or, you know, you using or attaching documents or information that they shouldn't be attaching. Um, so I think a lot of these tools are going to eliminate um, some of those Excuses for coming back—that it's that it's um, for security. I think there are lots of other ways companies can be securing their information um, to avoid this like incredible flood of data breaches that happen that's been happening during the pandemic. Um, but I do I don't think we're there yet. So you know, is the safest place may still be back at the office where all the security protocols are in place. Um, yeah. But as somebody mentioned in the comments. Um, you know, variants are coming, and we could be f- heading to another shutdown. So I, you know, I think the best approach is still to be prepared for a hybrid.
0: Yeah, no shutdowns till after ILTA. Joe, you are going <laughs> to...
5: Um, less a comment than a quip. Uh, when we had off of uh, my favorite when, though. When Victor. Well, I mean, between when between Victoria and Victor's uh, comments about how uh, a client asking for something gives cover and kind of like pushes the issue forward, but also maybe only when it's what people really, what people in the firm really wanted. Because my when it was about the client, that all I could think is that didn't work out well for Coca Cola. Like the client made demands, and the firm's ignored him until, until he lost his job, uh, which is kind of a sad uh, commentary on it. But yeah, it was like, it only works. It only works when the client demands things occasionally.
6: Yeah. Well, and I'm going to throw out something I feel like is not talked about very often or enough. And that's the psychological aspects of men in power. And so, and I, I generalizing by saying men, but men tend to be the ones in power. And oftentimes, you know, you see the studies that CEOs and law firm leaders and surgeons, there's lots of narcissists that are in these positions of power. And narcissists, um, there's two two issues. A, people that are narcissistic tend to need people around them to feed their ego, and that doesn't work nearly as well over Zoom. And B, and I've told this story before, um, the point is that a lot of men escape things that are happening at home by going to work. And I'm generalizing because it's not all men, but um, men do this. And my favorite example of that is years ago when I was an associate in a law firm, um, there was a huge snowstorm and I couldn't get in even though I'd grown up in upstate New York. And when I finally got into the office, I was the second person there. And the first person was one of the partners. And I said, I can't believe you got into the office. How'd you get into the office so quickly? And he said, are you kidding? Stay at home with my family and kids on a snow day? Forget about it. And he was joking, but I don't think he was joking. And so (laughs) I do think that a lot of- (laughs) a lot of people um, and probably I I wouldn't I don't want to just say men um, going to the office is get you away from your home it gives you a break it gives you some space and I think that people that are tend to be extroverted also need that as well so I think there's a lot of psychological things that are playing people play up the business aspects and the business reasons but there's a lot of psychological drivers behind these decisions as well I think
1: that's a, yeah. that's a really excellent point, Nikki, And it's, it's, it, it, it's kind of shaping up like a, like a generational conflict almost with, with the old white guys wanting to make things like it was and a new generation of, of younger lawyers that, that like the remote and the flexibility. And that to, to me, that's the really interesting thing is, is this sort of this push and shove that that's going on. And, you know, typically for years, the old white guys would always win. And now, you know, it, Maybe they will. But, you know, there seems to be enough competition for associates that there's some some flexibility there. Yeah,
4: Yeah. that was my knee jerk reaction to this, too, not only from the outside counsel perspective, but even within Morgan Stanley is if you're a high powered attorney who is able to kind of pick and choose where they want to go, as presumably everybody who's going to be working at Morgan Stanley is, wouldn't that be paramount and kind of one of the very first things you look at is how flexible are they in how they work with their attorneys why if i'm a very high-ranking aspiring lawyer why would i want to go to that place that is that inflexible when i could go to another major bank another major institution that is a little bit more flexible in how they work and able to listen to their younger attorneys their people who do want to work flex uh with that flexibility, um, I think it definitely could backfire in
0: that way. I mean, I think you do have to take into account that in the financial services industry, there are external industry uh, regulations and, and legal legal mandates that that. You know, are, are going to inhibit their ability to be flexible as a yeah. workplace, and 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 I, I those are you know if you're the chief legal officer of a major financial institution, you, you can't ignore those. But again, that's not what he talked about in his letter, so it, it's hard to say that that has anything to do with the decision here. Um, I'm going to suggest we move on to another topic uh, because we've got a number to get to here, uh, and uh, this this past week was uh, more. Was this the end of legal week year? It uh, was. I'm the losing final track of my legal of week year five. calendar. Yes.
5: Um,
0: so legal week year has come to an end. But uh, it was actually a, a, some good programming this week. Uh, and, and one that I, I, I know uh, several sources wrote about and covered and, and attended, and Zach, you had brought this up, was this one on uh, whether the legal tech market is uh, on the verge of a, a, a bubble. Uh, you want to talk yeah. a little bit about that?
4: Well, I thought it was interesting. I mean, the panel was essentially that. It was just kind of talking about there's been so much money flowing into legal technology. There are a bunch of startups right now. Is this potentially a bubble that could burst at some time, or is it still a boom and there's still a lot of growth to be had? Um, The panelists there pretty much universally said, no, there's still a lot of room for growth just in terms of adoption rates and areas of the law that can be automated. There is still a lot to happen here. So we're not necessarily in a bubble right now. And they define bubble very narrowly as in a time when um, particularly the major players start to kind of fall off a little bit because there's no room for them to grow and thus entrance don't have any room to grow either if even the big players aren't growing um and I think you are seeing pretty clearly the big players are still growing in this industry it, the main thing for me is it just got me thinking whether a bubble could be on the horizon or just kind of even prognosticating how far out that would need to be. Um, I think it's tough to look at right now, just because the rate of change within legal is still pretty high and there's still a lot of processes to be automated. I just thought it was kind of an interesting topic to bandy about back and forth, just because I think a lot of people continue to look at the growth of legal tech without kind of taking that step back and saying, Oh, would we even know if there is a problem here, essentially? Yeah.
0: Molly, well, you were at that, you uh, watched it. What did you think?
7: I thought it was really interesting. I, you know, I've been kind of focused on this idea of what legal tech is um, and whether legal tech is a thing. Uh, and I really think that that question got answered for me in a, in a good way um, with um, oh, Daryl, is it Shetterly sh- sh- yeah. sh- sh- from Orc um, Observatory. There. Um, he I thought he really and he, and he still didn't answer the question about you know what what is operational only that crosses it you know operational that crosses um, different sectors and is not purely legal or you know tools just for lawyers and legal um, and still that hasn't completely shaken out yet so when they were to, they use this baseball analogy with where we are in tech and I think what we're not even Zach of Somebody said not even out of the out of the dugout, <laughs> or we haven't. And somebody said we haven't finished singing the national anthem, or just right. finished. So like you know, really still early in the early stages, nowhere near a um um a, a bubble.
0: Right. Yeah. I I um I thought it was a really good panel too. I, I I watched it. Um, and uh, the one I I was talking about this before we we started recording today that one of the things that struck me about it wasn't so much the whole bubble question as there was a lot of discussion on the panel about how do you, how do you kind of sort through all the hype in the legal tech world and all the hype that's coming out of the companies. I know this is something we've talked about on this panel before, but it's something I feel I just, I struggle with all the time as a writer because I, I don't want to be played for a sucker <laughs> by, by companies that tell me a whole bunch of stuff about their products that I have no way really of verifying. Uh, you know, I was saying before we started, I, there, there's, Some products that I am capable of testing and trying myself, Uh, there are others that as a sole practitioner, uh, you know, uh, sitting here by myself in my office, I I just, I don't have the staff or or the resources to, to test out these products. And so I really have to accept uh companies representations often about them and often those representations tend to be very generic i mean they tend to often all say more or less the same thing uh, if they're in the same market or have the same kind of a product uh and you know i I thought like itai gharari was on the panel he's the uh founder of the legal research platform judicata and he's now at he's acquired by Fastcase, and he's i think Chief Technology Officer, I, mean, I forget what his title is at Fastcase now, but you know, I mean, he said that basically everything companies say about AI is hype; <laughs> that that it's all hype, uh, and uh, nobody should even be talking about AI. It's just a question of does the product, what does the product do, does it do it well or not, and and forget whether it's AI or not. Um, you know, so I, I just think it's a really interesting issue to try and sort through as a writer about legal tech because I, I just I, I, I struggle with it almost every day.
4: I don't even think it's a writer question. I think even the people who are in the trenches, who are in operations, everybody's asking that question right now. I mean, you even just see it from the fact that somebody like LexFusion has a viable business model by being able to kind of sort through these things and verify and then be able to go to their clients and say, this works. Um, A lot of people are looking for kind of that external validation because unless you get something in there and have a very long RFP or proof of concept. It's tough to verify a lot of times, especially with how many different tools are out there.
6: Well, yeah, but like you
0: was. yeah, go ahead. Go ahead,
6: um, Well, I was gonna say with my ABA journal articles where I write about different categories of legal software each month, I always end them by saying, you've got to test the software out yourself because You know, people always want either bar associations to give the green light, which they won't do. They'll never say we prefer this, they'll say we partner, but they won't say this is the best choice. They won't say this is the most secure. Um, And lawyers also want check marks, like checklists, like which has these features and which doesn't. But to your point, Bob, they can say it has this feature, but how does the feature actually function and work? And that's why I always tell lawyers that they need to have a few people, including some stakeholders that are not necessarily lawyers, Test the software out. Try it out with a couple of different cases or with a bunch of different contracts, as the case may be. Narrow it down to two companies, test their software out and see which works the best and see which ones you have a buy in from with your uh, um, staff and everyone that's going to be using it. Because if they, they don't buy in, it's not going to get used and you're going to be wasting your time and your investment and your money. So I, I, I totally appreciate this idea that it's difficult for journalists to. Um, Sort out what it all means, but I, in some ways, I don't think it's necessarily our job. We report what they're telling us, and it at the end of the day, the customer does have to do some legwork, or through Lex Fusion. But even then, I would suggest that there's some skin in the game. They have skin in the game by partnering with these companies too. So at the end of the day, the the customer has to try it out. The law firm has to try it out and see what works best. You just have to. Like
5: it's well, it's um, it's just there's a narrow uh journalistic place between um the sort of place you go. And I, I'm, I'm a purveyor. I am not purveyor. I'm a consumer of products like video games or something. And I go to websites where they say, we played this. And this is what it looks like three out of four stars. Like there's the kind of journalism that says, Hey, this is a three out of four star thing. And the kind that just says this has been released and this is what we know about it, but we don't know. We don't know what that means for you. And, kind of parsing that and walking that line can be difficult for people. Because I think we all know where that is, I think, but uh, somebody reading may not. And they may read me say something and say like, oh, you said this was great. And I was like, no, I said it did the things the company told me it said it did. And I compared that to claims other people made, but that's different than me saying five stars. You know, uh, it's, yeah, it, it's, it's an interesting question. And whether or not the audience knows that we're walking that line, is a question too, like whether we're conveying that we're on one side of it or not?
0: Yeah, and I, I should be that's clear that when I was saying it's difficult to test these, I'm talking to some to some extent about the the products that are really designed for sort of enterprise scale uh, operations, uh, where you know uh, you need some bulk of, of of whether it's contracts or or deals or whatever else it is, even to be able to kind of. Get started on the software, let alone test it out. You know, I thought that the guy from Oric was, was it was interesting when when people were asking him why Oric Observatory doesn't sort of put more of the background information uh, that that Oric develops about these products. But I mean, he talked about the fact that you know Oric as a firm has all these resources in terms of IT staff and innovation staff and whatever else who can go out and vet these products and try them out and test them out. And they put a lot of time and resources into this. Uh, Most law firms just don't have those kinds of resources available to them to, to put that kind of time and effort into testing products. Um, You know, so.
7: Yeah, that was, that was a really good, interesting date. Daryl said that they had 150 people with Orac Observatory doing that work. like that's amazing to me
6: yeah
7: (laughs) so they're doing a lot of vetting but you know the question was um you know is how do you distinguish the hype and the and he said that that observatory is not how you decide that and so you know it's still it's it's a good resource as a you know as a place to go but it's still not going to help you do what nikki said and what you're talking about which is you know demo the product see if it works in your environment for the type of work you're doing. And a lot of that, especially enterprise requires a lot of level of customization before you can really even see that. So that test, you know, that testing is is difficult to do. And, I, and mm-hmm. I don't have an answer to the question other than Lex, you know, more of the same of Lex Fusion or what Joe's talking about, which is, you know, better ratings, so customer ratings. So we can start to see how the the competition is is faring. Uh, What I did learn is that funding um, is not an indicator. (laughs) It's not hard to get funding, at least um, in the beginning from your friends if you have a good idea or they like you. Um,
5: Well, you could dupe Morgan Stanley into giving you money. (laughs) (laughs)
1: You know, it's it is a difficult problem all the way around because I was just sitting here thinking, you know, many of these products, particularly that that are litigation oriented until you actually use them with a case or cases you it's it's almost impossible to assess how good or not good that they are so but then you're left with the question if if you're a law firm using an unknown product on a case could detrimentally impact your client both so, you know from a from a yeah, cost you know, standpoint I, I or a results standpoint so there you know, it's kind of a hard it's a difficult sort of thing for all the way around I think for people to get their heads around and deal with
7: we say you know Stephen I've seen a lot of um, demos on on Ari Kaplan's um, lunch they, he's been doing that like every week for over a year at this point um, with with um, some Um, background behind the scenes tours and some of the best for especially for litigation uh, companies that I've seen really do a good job partnering with clients to do that work so that the clients have done some rigorous testing that then you can see in the demo. Um, You know, they anonymize it, you know, however they need to do it. But they do have some real world examples to share. And I think that's one way that that startups can do that. But, you know, you have to get somebody to trust you or you have to come up with some really sophisticated hypotheticals.
0: Yeah, Um, there was another uh, panel this week uh victoria that you uh brought up i think on uh on uh remote court hearings
2: Can yeah, you tell us about they, that the last keynote speak, uh p- keynote panel for legal week year 2021 was the judges panel and one of the main things that they brought up the main topics that they brought up was um federal court proceedings um, being conducted remotely. And it sounds like from the panelists that it was a success and they said like, of course, like council had the option of like remotely participating in proceedings via um, telephone or video conferencing, but it didn't really happen before the pandemic. But because of the pandemic, a lot of judges said they were leveraging that tool, and they said they found a lot of efficiencies with it, especially And they said they could see longevity with using those platforms, you know, beyond the pandemic, mostly for like non-evidentiary or maybe oral arguments. And I thought it was interesting, especially because the uh, CARES Act, um, an exemption in the CARES Act allowed um public access to to the federal courts via telephone and video conferencing, but the CARES Act exemption will expire at some point. But according, and it's kind of interesting because it kind of ties into like Morgan Stanley saying, oh, lawyers need to go back into the office and, you know, in person is better. When you have federal judges saying like, we think that um, remote uh, court proceedings are actually more efficient and more effective for the the, uh, corporate clients and for the uh, uh, lawyers in the court system. And they're already starting to think of ways of like, how can we continue this and still allow public access to the courts, um, especially if the uh, CARES Act uh, limits the uh, ability to have like video conferencing public uh, access. So I thought it was interesting and just kind of like, A sharp uh, contrast to like what Morgan Stanley is saying, like, oh, it has to be better to be in person. When you have the federal court system saying that they're able to do their jobs and their customers, the lawyers, the um, clients, are able to do their job more effectively when you don't have to be in person for every single thing, but it can still get get done.
1: I saw the same panel, Victoria, and one thing I thought was really interesting was the one judge, and it kind of goes back to, you know, you have to assess your situation and what's good May be good for you, may not be good for the fellow judge. But one judge was saying, she really liked telephonic hearings, not in-person hearings or Zoom hearings, because she said, "I'm I'm a very expressive person, and I tend to give like too many clues that the lawyers can see if they can if they can see me. So it's really for me, it's much better to be tele, telephonic, so they don't get those kind of clues." That that to me, I've, I had never thought of that, to be quite honest. But it was really really interesting. <laughs> Of course,
0: isn't the flip side of that that the judge isn't getting the clues from the witnesses or the lawyers that you know that, that right. they get uh, visually?
5: Well, and and uh, some sometimes uh, well, like so. This is not. Uh, I've never been a judge, been a mediator, but not a judge. Uh, and so, uh, but like I've judged debate rounds and stuff, and I'm very expressive, and I feel like at some point you as a judge owe it to the advocates to show I'm not buying it do something else um you, like and you can show that and then and that as a when I gave oral arguments occasionally I would see some something not working and I would go oh well I need to slow down stop this part move to the next part and, and that's important part of the process too so telephonic isn't as good as zoom like i I think you do want as a judge to give away what you're thinking a little bit
2: yeah. It was something oh, my, the my US Oh, in the U.S. Supreme Court, they said they didn't like telephonic uh, arguments because you couldn't read from the justices, like, were they buying, like, their argument or were they not? But I think, what was it? Justice Thomas, uh, Clarence Thomas, he said he kind of liked it because they had to be a little bit more considerate of like, okay, you have time for your arguments and everything like that. So it's a little bit of pros and cons. I can personally just see a preference for video conferencing because you know when someone's speaking, you don't necessarily need someone to say like, what's your name before you say something. It's just kind of like, you know, Zoom, hopefully you have your name that pops up so that's a little bit more clear to know who's speaking.
3: Yeah, like mm-hmm. my, my, my very first jury trial when I, uh, when I went back when I practiced, um you know i was still you know and obviously i didn't know what i was doing i barely knew what i was doing and uh my my judge happened to be like a former prosecutor who you know clearly thought that the guy was guilty um and so one thing that i picked up on was that whatever whenever i missed an objection he would immediately stare at me as if he was expecting me to stand up and object so it got to the point where like he would just stare at me and i would go oh objection your honor so um you know not not to say everyone everyone's experience is going to be like that but um I, I, I do think that um, you know you, you lose you lose a lot when you do a telephonic conference uh, or a, or a, you know I mean obviously you know the you know like you're not having the not having the jury there not being able to see what they're thinking not being able to see what the, the other parties not being able to see the judge I do think there's a lot that 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 gets lost in in, 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 in not being able to in losing that visual element kind of like what we were talking about earlier with regards to listening to this listening to, the, to this to this uh, uh, you know um, uh, roundtable as opposed to just watching it on uh, on you know, live or on YouTube. So, um, so, so, so that's interesting, but also, I mean, you know, I, I mean, I didn't, I, I missed the panel, but just, I'm, I'm just reading the, reading the, uh, the, the, the write-up, you know, it, it'll be interesting to, to, to see, to see what, you know, what other judges think about, think about it, because I mean, correct me if, if I'm, if I'm wrong, Rakoff was a pretty forward-looking judge, especially regarding like technology and whatnot. And, you know, um, uh, Andrew Peck on there, like he was, he was very big into like technology when he was on the bench. Um, you know, so obviously you have people who are already kind of, predisposed to like liking to, to to predispose to liking you know integrating technology into into their courtrooms to begin with. So it'll be interesting to see what the rest of the bench and, 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 and maybe maybe judges who aren't as as inclined to like utilize technology or open to it, what, you know, what what they would think about it. Well
6: yeah, there is some... some Go ahead.
4: Go ahead. I was just about to say I think that's a very good point that especially a lot of these panels that are talking about remote work are somewhat self-selecting because they're people that have tried it, like it. And really want it to be adopted. But with that said, I also think a lot of those judges that have tried it are also the best ones to give feedback and kind of teach the rest of the judiciary, okay, this is what works, this is what doesn't, and kind of come to a consensus that way, because nobody teaches judges better than other judges a lot of times, it's easier to learn something from your peers than having the general commentary; it say, "Oh, this is something that you should do." Um, so, being able to learn from experience, particularly within the past twelve months, whether or not it is accepted widely, I at least think it's helpful to have that as a base to start the conversation moving forward.
6: And um, and in, and in regard to this idea that um, the panel was forward thinking, and maybe that colored some of the perception. Uh, I'm in upstate New York, and I would deferentially suggest, or uh, that we are not—I would not say that the judiciary or the lawyers here are um, as easy to adopt tech as uh, are eager to adopt tech as other uh, more metropolitan areas. So we're, you know, a little more uh, overall reluctant to do that. And um, during the pandemic, there were some judges. Somebody
5: disagrees. Is what I (laughs) hear, right? Um, Vehemently, yeah. I'll just say, like, who do you think you are, Buffalo?
6: I mean, the short and sweet of it is that there were some judges here who agreed, who thought that um, really liked Zoom and indicated that they never would have thought they'd be zooming previously, but um, that they definitely plan to do it for more um, routine court appearances. So I do think that judges who weren't tech. Um, we're tech averse, really took to it here. And I don't think that that's, that's uh, they're the minority. I'd say they're the majority. And with that, I'm yeah. gonna mute myself.
0: Yeah, so all all during the uh, the past year, so many of us on this panel and so many others, uh, all through all sorts of other uh, sources were saying, you know, there, there's no going back. We've made these changes and there's no going back. But I think what we're seeing now to some extent is, is people trying to define what no going back Really looks like it's not a black and white. I, there are all sorts of nuances to, to the issue. I mean, I, I'm dealing with this and some of the issues. I, I'm, you know, I, I do lobbying in my in my law work on behalf of the newspaper industry. And, and one of the big issues now in our legislature is, you know, to what extent, how should government meetings now be held going forward? People, people, some people really like just watching government meetings, you know, via Zoom. Uh, but other people weren't able to attend via Zoom because they don't have computers or they don't have broadband or they don't get how to do it. Uh, so now, now what should government meetings look like? Should we go back to the old way? Should we have some new hybrid model? Should we go entirely uh, online all the time? Uh, you know, and they're not, they're not easy questions because there are, uh, there are uh, people on, on all sides of the issue who get affected differently by it. What else did we have here this week? We had uh, Molly. You want to talk about keyword advertising?
7: Sure, sure. This is from uh, last month, uh, and I don't think we got a chance to get to it, um, or I I didn't see it, um, that Ohio um, issued an opinion um, banning uh, competitive keyword advertising. And I'm actually going to put in the link from Eric Goldman's piece, which was a really excellent takedown of the um, of the opinion, and it seems like you know at at first blush it seems like it makes sense that you're like oh don't you can't buy the law firm's name that's you know a a terrible thing to do um, because it's anti-competitive well you know there are a lot of legitimate reasons you would buy your advertising against a law firm for competitive reasons for comparative reasons to you know say your your you're smaller but just as as qualified or have more experience or you know there are lots of different reasons. And um, you know, Eric G- G- Goldman's uh position on this was that um that uh the the opinion really just didn't cite any rational rational reasons <laughs> why to ban the competitive keywords of uh, advertising. So um and it kind of went against the grain um and you know took like a several, like a decade step back into, you know, the uh, user's understanding of competitive advertising that they, they don't, when you're doing searches, this isn't your expectation um, that the competitive keywords would be used this way. So I thought it was really interesting.
0: What about the question of whether it's deceptive as opposed to anti-competitive?
7: Right. So he, he, his argument is that it's not deceptive um, because it's not used the way that Ohio is um, assuming it's being used uh, it, that that it's very unusual for it to be used as a way um, to, you know, just supplant another, another firm and uh, um, lunch hour of legal marketing uh, geese uh, Sakalakis did a, a nice um, um, review of this too, and he he made that you know when you're in a small area and you're doing that type of advertising, you're going to kill your own reputation. So it's a it's a really bad way for you to be known in your own area um, to be competing this way, uh, buying buying competitive terms.
0: Any other thoughts on that? Should we move on to uh, Nikki? Do you want to bring up her story?
6: Yeah, I. I just thought this was interesting because I'm always interested in the intersection of privacy and technology. And it was uh, an article that talked about how Maine um, has banned, it's the first state to um, pass broad government, a governmental ban, uh, pass broad government ban on facial recognition tech, meaning that um, they post this in the chat, the they basically said that for the most part. The government in Maine cannot use facial recognition technology. Uh, There was a narrow exception, which was for the police in particularly serious cases, where, um, but they could not use their own tech. They had to go to the FBI or, I believe, it was the CIA um, bureau. Oh, the Bureau of Motor Vehicles, not the CIA. (laughs) Um, Big difference there, but. But I I I think it um, I for one, think it's a very good move because um, of all the issues we've talked about in the past, in particular how AI, uh, the underlying algorithms are um, biased because of the programming, uh, unintentionally so, but they are biased, especially towards people of color and women's faces. They are very good at um, identifying white men's faces fairly accurately and that's about it. And so when AI is used, it's off, um, to identify people, especially for crimes, it's often um, incorrect in terms of the conclusions that it um, leads to. So I th- I think that it's important to regulate AI, uh, especially facial recognition technology. Um, and I think that this is a step in the right direction and it, not just facial re- recognition, but AI in general, because I think Skynet is le- a legitimate threat, this idea of um, AI gaining sentience and Killing, killing all of us here, humans. So, um, <laughs> and there are definitely people out there that agree with me that are um, a lot smarter than I am when it comes to those issues. And there are people that disagree. But um, <clears throat> either way, I thought it was a notable, um, uh, a notable um, regulation that had been passed, and that hopefully other states will do the same thing because I think it's important. And I think sometimes people aren't paying enough attention to facial recognition and how invasive it is and how pervasive it is right now without much regulation.
0: I didn't get a chance to read the article in depth, but I noticed that it, it made a reference to the fact that there is a exception carved out for law enforcement investigations of certain kinds. So isn't that what we're most worried about with the software in the first place? I mean, uh, what what is the nature of that carve out?
6: Well, it's for particularly serious crimes. I'm not sure how they define serious crimes and also that it, um did not allow them to use the technology themselves, but to instead use the DMVs or the FBI's. Um, and so uh, I, I think what's important about that is that there is some oversight and it's not just um, a wide open free for all, which is what it has been in the past. Um, but I, I agree that I think it's important for that, uh, clarity on that. And I didn't read the um, actual uh, um bill
5: or law that was passed on that so i'm not sure um, you know, sli- slight addendum to this i went to a uh, so a lot of people uh, like there are are nefarious uses of facial techni- facial recognition technology obviously and but they one of the things that sometimes it get u- gets used for is identifying just like this is where people are within this pic that these are where people are within this picture for the purposes of uh deposition, like creating exhibits and whatever. And I actually saw a demo from a vendor that I am blanking on at the moment, who was talking about, in light of the facial recognition problems, they had gone out and developed an algorithm that's able to tell that you have like a shoulder with a head on it, basically, and say, this is a person. And we're not going to say what person or try to do that. But these are people so that if you're trying to code like a long series of things, it's like, Oh, this is when people appear in it as opposed to when they don't so that somebody can review it later and be like, Oh, this is the part of the security camera footage where people were or whatever, it would be able to do that. And I was like, that's really clever. Like you found a way to get like the function that people want without bringing in all the horrible stuff. Uh, I thought it was an interesting twist and one that people in Maine probably need to uh, learn about.
4: Yeah, I think that's kind of interesting, too, just how pervasive a law like this would be. I know we had a series of contributed articles from lawyers at uh, Blank Rome that basically talked about virtual try-on technology. Like, you want to buy a hat or a shirt? Go ahead and upload your face and see how it looks on you sort of deal. Which, obviously, I would think would fall directly under exactly what this law is trying to do, The way that the article said is, well, make sure you bring in privacy counsel early, have arbitration waivers, stuff like that. It was mostly talking about the um, BIPA in Illinois as compared to just a flat ban or something like this. But I think particularly as technology evolves and kind of that interactivity, particularly online of what a lot of retailers are doing, um, I think that's going to be kind of tricky for lawyers to navigate, and particularly laws like this. What exactly they're carving out, what it falls under, it, what doesn't fall under it, I think, will be very tricky and probably lead to a lot of litigation.
3: Yeah, I mean, just just reading over the article that that, that Nikki linked to, it said law enforcement can only ask for searches on subjects of interest in pictures or video. If they do not have another means of identifying them, it's like, well, what's to stop a law enforcement officer from saying, "Oh, couldn't identify them. We, we, we need to use the, the, we need to use the the, the facial recognition." And sorry, yeah, you know, we tried. Um, and so, yeah, I, I guess, yeah, it's one, it's one of those things where the devil's in the detail. But one thing, one thing I thought was interesting is it, is it talks about uh, Washington State's law, which was passed last year. It said, it said that the Maine law is much stronger than the Washington law, and probably because uh, they noted that. Um, the law was written the washington law was written by a state senator who also works as a program manager at microsoft and i kind of felt like well that's seems like that would be uh (laughs) that would raise ethical issues that i wouldn't care to speculate on um and so so um i guess you know hopefully the main law is is coming from a better place than that or more um you know yeah, like, but, 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 I still see. I just, just, just looking at it superficially, like, I, I yeah, like, just, I could see all kinds of issues with it. Just, you know, just that, that any, that any, any, any competent law enforcement officer could just drive a truck through it.
0: Well, and doesn't it presume uh, if law if law enforcement can still use it in certain certain circumstances, then it would presume that the the information is still being collected somewhere for them to use. And if it's still being collected out there for for them to use. Then there is still all sorts of potential for abuse somehow so i mean it's i you know it, it's a good thing that they passed this law but it seems to be uh it seems to have a few uh swiss cheese size holes in it uh, and as it seems.
2: i hadn't heard of this um ban by maine so nikki brought it up but it's interesting because this week um this guy that was falsely arrested because like a police um a police force in detroit um said that he would committed a crime based off of like some facial recognition technology, but it actually was inaccurate and he actually didn't do the crime and he ended up suing like the um, police department. He testified in front of like a House subcommittee about like facial recognition technology and its shortcomings and just kind of pressed for this law, I guess, Democrats are going um, trying to uh, pass like the facial recognition and biometric technology moratorium. So it's kind of interesting, like, of course, I'm assuming it's not going to go anywhere, but kind of interesting that you are starting to see like it pick up a little bit. And of course, this man um, um, being arrested, being falsely accused, stemming from like facial recognition technology, I kind of assume is that going to be like the DNA test, like back in what was it, the early 2000s or something, like a lot of guys got like multi-million dollar settlements because DNA proved like, oh, they didn't actually commit the crime. Like, are we gonna actually see these facial recognition technology, people went to jail and maybe even got a guilty conviction and it's actually like it was based off like some inaccurate facial
5: recognition technology. So. Yep. Yeah uh, I, they, actually, they, I they dis- disagree a little bit. Qualified immunity.
3: Yeah, okay. I actually disagree a little bit with what you said Victoria not because of but like you know I found I mean just isn't the Republicans hate hate big tech just as much if not more than Democrats do these days so I, so I could see that being like the one area of common ground that they have in this congress so, if anything could possibly be done to like, and plus, you know, I mean, I think I think facial—I believe facial recognition was used pretty extensively to identify people on the January sixth um, uh, insurrection. Yeah. So, I could I could definitely see you know some like bipartisan support for some kind of facial recognition ban or moratorium.
5: Yeah. So the Supreme Court's not going to give up on qualified immunity anytime soon. So. Yeah.
0: I've, um, we're just about out of time, Victor. I know you were going to talk about a story about uh, working from home, fueling cyber attacks. I think we've kind of, yeah, kind yeah, of I bounced think, I think- that around a little bit already in the course of this discussion. Uh, I was just going to mention the uh, Lexus Plus announcement this week that incorporates the Law 360 uh, news into Lexus uh, Plus, which is kind of a a a half a a half baked uh, thing. I mean, it's it's good that it's in there, but you you still can't get the full access to any of the stories unless you happen to be a Law 360 subscriber. So you can get the get the headlines right within Lexus Plus, but you don't get the stories unless you pay in that extra subscriptions so uh but it's still it's still an interesting move for lexus plus i think that's it anything else anybody wanted to raise this week before we wrap up hope uh everybody's weather conditions improve for the weekend and uh maybe by next week summer will arrive somewhere we'll be back next week i think thanks out to everybody for watching
6: and listening